0: And good morning, everybody. We're looking today in 1 Corinthians, starting this time in verse 18 of chapter 1. And I think that we're going to see three basic things in this one passage, just to let you know what we're in for today in this study. The gospel is foolish to many, as Steve just mentioned. Many people would look at the cross and some of the songs that we might sing about there is power in the blood and our sins have been washed clean as white as snow, things like that. And they would think, well that's foolishness. But it's also wise to some, as Paul will show us, and that all of the gospel is from God. None of it can be attributed to any human effort. So that's what we're going to look at today in this passage. I want you to listen and let these words get into your brain. I'm going to read just this passage verses 18 through 31 from 1 Corinthians 1. I know very well How foolish it sounds to those who are lost when they hear that Jesus died to save them. But we who are saved recognize this message as the very power of God. For God says, I will destroy all human plans of salvation, no matter how wise seem to be, and ignore the best ideas of men, even the most brilliant of them. So what about these wise men, these scholars, these brilliant debaters of the world's great affairs? God has made them all look foolish and has shown their wisdom to be useless, useless nonsense. For God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never find God through human brilliance. And then he stepped in and saved all those who believed his message, which the world calls foolish and silly. It seems foolish to the Jews because they want a sign from heaven as proof that what is preached is true, and it's foolish to the Gentiles because they believe only what agrees with their philosophy and seems wise to them. So when we preach about Christ dying to save them, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But God has opened the eyes of those called to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, to see that Christ is the mighty power of God to save them. Christ himself is the center of God's wise plan for their salvation. This so-called foolish plan of God is far wiser than the wisest plan of the wisest man, and God in his weakness, Christ dying on the cross, is far stronger than any man. Now notice among yourselves, dear brothers, because Paul is writing to these believers in Corinth, that few of you who follow Christ have big names or power or wealth. Instead, God has deliberately chosen to use ideas the world considers foolish and of little value in order to shame those people considered by the world as wise and great. He has chosen a plan despised by the world, counted as nothing at all, and used it to bring down to nothing those the world considers great, so that no one anywhere can ever brag in the presence of God. For it's from God alone that you have your life through Christ Jesus. He showed us God's plan of salvation. He was the one who made us acceptable to to God. He made us pure and holy and gave himself to purchase our salvation. As it says in the scriptures, if anyone is going to boast, let him boast only of what the Lord has done. You know it when you're lost. Now, men, sometimes we know it because we're in the car with our wives. But sometimes we just know, we have that inner sense that, yeah, I I think I don't know where I am. I know where I want to get, but I. I don't know how to get there from here. We felt that. I felt that as a little boy when I was in a parking lot behind the Baptist buildings, what we used to call it. It had our Southern Baptist Conference Center and uh, all the main offices in downtown Phoenix, Arizona. And my mom, who would go there for meetings sometimes because she was a member of the Women's Missionary Union leadership for the state, she would allow me to play with a little bouncy ball in the stairwell behind the building. But one time I bounced a little too hard, (laughs) and that ball made its way up and out of the stairwell into the parking lot and under a few parked cars. I was probably not going in places that I should have gone, but all those back stairwells started to look the same. And wherever I came to go back to where I was, I didn't find the right door. (laughs) And so I just realized I'm lost. And all of a sudden, this gentleman whose face I recognized, who's a gray-haired fella, very kind, smiling gentleman, said, you look to me like maybe you're looking for somebody. Would you happen to be looking for your mom? And I realized that this was a friend of my mother's because she had spoken about him. And so I thought, OK, I think I can trust this guy. And I said, yes. He said, let me take you to her. And he walked about two stairwells over (laughs) That's how far away my ball had bounced. And then he took me in the proper door and up a flight of stairs, and there was my mom. It felt so good to be found. And when he had asked, what did it feel like to be lost, I remember that my mom, because she never let me forget this, she said, it felt terrible, awful. That's the way it felt. My whole world got turned upside down. I was in a state of shock. And bewilderment and kind of feels a little bit like what some of us have been going through in a pandemic, doesn't it? It's terrible, awful to feel lost, and you just don't know which way is up anymore. Well, to be found is to be safe and accepted and cared for. And that's what I felt like. And that's what the Apostle Paul is telling people in Corinth they feel like when they know they were lost at one point spiritually, and then they were found because they stopped believing that something was foolish to them and started seeing it as wise. And that kind of wisdom brought them salvation. There are some contrasts in this passage and in a lot of Paul's writing. He says that the gospel, that fact that Jesus died to save lost people like us, sounds like foolishness to those who are still in that lost condition. But to those who are found, that same message is hope-filled because it's the power of God resulting in their salvation. We watched a movie and I can't recommend this movie to your families who have smaller children because there's a lot of language that shows up in it. But Joy and Callie and I decided to see it because we had seen several reviews. Apparently this came out before the lockdown and so we were able to see it in a streaming venue. It was about the Ford versus Ferrari. And there's this one kind of uh, epic scene where uh, Shelby is going to take Ford for a ride because Shelby is designing this GT40 race car so that they could try to have an American company build a car that could beat Ferrari in the great 24-hour Le Mans. And uh, it was an epic scene because Ford II, who's the grandson of Henry Ford, the original, was taking a ride in this race car and he'd never ridden in a car quite that fast. So Shelby knew that he needed to try to impress upon Ford that somebody who knows race cars has to be the lone person to design that race car. He needs to have sole control over the design process because it was going to get all committed out and that was going to degrade the process and result in failure. And he knew that the only way to impress him with somebody who knows race cars was to take him for a ride in a race car. And so sure enough, he starts ripping around this test track and you can see the fear, the utter terror in Ford's face, the actor playing Ford. And when they came to a screeching halt, Ford just blubbers like a baby. And Shelby's looking at him and he says, are you okay? And the only thing Ford could get out was, I had no idea. I had no idea. And at first you're thinking, okay, he had no idea about the speed. And I think that's true. But then there was something that starts to shift in the tone of his voice and even in the look of his face. And he's saying, I had no idea. And then he said something that reveals that there was something even deeper going on at a different level. He says, I just wish my dad would be here to experience this. And you think, Oh, there's something going on here. That's a lot deeper. And more meaningful even than what we originally thought. Paul the Apostle is saying to some of these folks that thought that the gospel, this message that Jesus died on a cross to save lost people was foolishness, he says, but to those people who see that as wisdom and who accept it, it's the power of God and they say, I had no idea. I had no idea. I had to experience it for myself before I finally saw the power at work, and it's the power of the cross. So that's why Paul could say things this serious. He would say, God is saying, I will destroy all human plans, all these philosophies, all these strongholds that would keep people from seeing the power of God. I'll just destroy them no matter how how wise they may seem to the people who have been embracing them all this time, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to reveal them to be just how impotent they really are. Even the best ideas of the most brilliant men are going to crumble. And that's exactly what happens to people who discover the power of the cross. Before we're found, we may think we know a lot. I think that's true about a lot of us. When we're growing up, And we've got parents, and we think our parents just don't know much at all. (laughs) And then we turn about 19, and all of a sudden we make a few big mistakes, and we start to think, ooh, you know, Mom and Dad knew a little bit more than I thought they did. Same thing spiritually. Sometimes we may think we know a lot, and we're well-read, and we're listening to lots of different philosophers, and we start to embrace things that we think are really wise. But then we start to get older, and we realize, you know, the more I know, the more I know I don't know. There's probably an awful lot out there that I still don't quite comprehend. And when we come in contact with the power of God, very often through His Word, sometimes through circumstances, sometimes through a whisper of the Holy Spirit, sometimes through a circumstance that God puts right in our path that we can't ignore, He lets us know that we don't know as much as we thought we knew. C.S. Lewis, brilliant guy. Most of you know about him. You've probably heard lots of quotes about him because pastors love to quote C.S. Lewis. You've probably read some of his writings because he was a brilliant author as well. One of his generation's brightest scholars, and yet after he had experienced this seismic shift when he was able to say, I had no idea, then all of a sudden he realized that his previous objections toward Christianity were those of a schoolboy. He would think, I had no idea. C.S. Lewis later wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. To some people this gospel message is just nonsense. It's silly, but to others it's the most amazing thing ever, which is why there's this dichotomy, and sometimes it's a growing dichotomy. You can see it I think even more expressed outwardly today than I ever used to see it expressed, especially in America and because of social media where people can put their ideas out there. And sometimes because we're hiding behind a screen, we can say things we might not have said to people publicly or in person. Some of these things that people are saying as objections to Christianity are pretty blatant and they're pretty hurtful. It was the same with Paul. He dealt with this and he dealt with it in public venues when he would go into a public place and start debating people openly with these different ideas that they would share. And to some they would think this stuff that Paul is spouting is nonsense. Paul you're ridiculous buddy, what are you trying to say? Some guy dies on a cross and because his blood is like the blood of some unblemished lamb he's become the atoning sacrifice and now we just have to believe that and that makes us somehow okay for heaven? what is this? This is nonsense. But to others, when they experience the power of that salvation, they think, I had no idea. (laughs) It's either foolishness or wisdom. But there's no in-between. Paul was very clear about that. And Jesus in all of his teaching in the New Testament would make it clear as well. You can't pick and choose little bits and pieces of that which we like And then say, but I'm going to keep this part of Christianity, but I'm going to borrow some of this from Buddhism, or I'm going to borrow some of this from Hinduism, or I'm going to borrow some of this from secular humanism. And I'm going to kind of make my own little hodgepodge, like the Gentiles were doing when they were saying, yeah, I want a philosophy that agrees with what I believe. And Paul says, no, it doesn't work that way. You've got to accept it or reject it. It's an all or nothing proposition. Let me get an odd analogy. I I don't know why I keep coming to these medical analogies, except that perhaps they deal with life and death, and because there's eternal life that has to do with Paul, uh, that's where my mind goes when I'm coming up with an analogy. But let's say that, and this is strictly hypothetical, okay, because I have not been diagnosed with that, just putting that out there for you. Uh, Let's say that a doctor says, I'm afraid I have bad news, but I have good news. The bad news is, yes, you have cancer, and it is in your right arm, and it takes place from about three inches just below your elbow to about three inches above your elbow. That's where this tumor is that's growing in your arm. And it's unfortunately a fast growing type of cancer. And so it will kill you if left undone. But the good news is we can do surgery. More bad news, good news. The bad news is we will have to take your arm. We're gonna amputate just below your shoulder. But the good news is you'll have your life. So we're gonna remove the bad part, we're gonna leave the good parts, and you're gonna have your life for the rest of your life. You've got years to go yet. And the prognosis is excellent based on situations that have been just like that. Now, what would happen if I looked at him and said, yeah, but doc, I've seen these amazing things that they can put onto your upper arm so that you can actually have artificial limbs that grip, and I could still play the trombone. I could still do things that I like to do. So just go ahead and take it off just below the elbow. And he would look at me and say, You don't seem to have comprehended what I'm telling you. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. Either we take the whole arm and you have your life, or we take a part of your arm and it will take your life. This is what I'm trying to get at with the Apostle Paul. He's saying it's that way with the gospel. (laughs) You can't pick and choose which parts of the gospel you like. You have to accept it as a whole and say, okay, I'm a depraved sinner at the core. That has separated me from God. Therefore, the only way for me to be saved is to accept that Jesus died in my place on a cross. I accept that. I desire his forgiveness. I ask for it. He gives that forgiveness and then he gives me a whole brand new life. And I have that whole brand new life forever. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? But you say, yeah, I know, but I have to probably give up some stuff in order to do that. And I don't want that. I want to cling to some of these other things that I know he's probably going to ask me to give up. Yeah, but you got your eternal life. <laughs> Can you see what a great trade this is? There's no comparison. That's why it's amazing to some and foolishness to others because they just can't see how wonderful it really is. So you either take 100% of the diagnosis and treatment or you reject the thing outright. C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about that and he agreed with the Apostle Paul. Well Paul makes some pretty serious demands in 1st Corinthians, his letter to these believers. The Jews were demanding a sign And so Paul is making some demands of the gospel itself. He says, okay, you're trying to make demands of me as a preacher of the gospel. He's saying, you're demanding that there be a sign. He says, what more sign do you want? All these eyewitnesses have attested to the fact that Jesus, who was absolutely dead on the cross, was put in a tomb for three days, but they saw him alive, having been raised from the dead on the third day. All those eyewitnesses were not a sign for you? Even Jesus had said earlier, the sign has already been given to you guys. You're demanding a sign, but there was the sign of Jonah. Well, he was pointing back to a story that the Jews would have known about, about a man who was in the belly of the great fish for three days, and then he was alive again, which was a foreshadowing pointing to what would happen in Jesus Christ. He knew that they would connect with that story, so he used a story that they knew about. He said, you've already gotten the sign." you're a perverse and wicked generation if you keep asking for a sign when I am the sign and I'm standing right in front of you. Hello. And then the Gentiles were making demands. They wanted a philosophy that matched the thing that they had cobbled together because they wanted to be able to cling to certain things that they like. And so they wanted to just mash some things up together and call that their religious system or their belief system. Both groups thought that Paul's gospel Which was based on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was foolishness. They both thought that that was was foolish and so Paul says, well the gospel makes demands on its hearers. You keep making demands of the gospel but I'm here to tell you the gospel makes demands on you. You either accept it or you reject it. And then he said, but let me let you know something because I have a feeling he was speaking to some people especially with those Jewish elite religious leaders. He was saying, Let me tell you something about this gospel. God doesn't favor the elite. There are very few among you who have wealth, power, a fancy name that people can hear and go, ooh, they're one of the great leaders. You're not the great influencers. Most of you in Corinth here are just ordinary folks. But instead, God has deliberately chosen us. Some of these people who might have even been despised by the world, they're considered foolish and of no consequence, lowly. They're of little value compared to the world to shame those people considered by the world to be wise and great. That's kind of good news, really, because we don't have to join some super super spiritual club where we can learn all the right steps and climb all the way up like they had in modern Gnosticism back then. A lot of what we see today in secular humanism is just another form of Gnosticism, which Paul was battling even back then, 2,000 years ago. And then he gives this, Illustration that Paul is thinking about. I think as he's writing this, you can see clues. You can almost hear Paul talking with his amanuensis about some things that they might have been thinking about. I suspect he was thinking about this. Remember the time in Acts 4 when Peter and John had this miraculous healing? He healed a man which had been lame from birth. He had been what the Bible was called crippled. I know that's not politically correct these days. He was disabled from birth. And the religious leader's reaction to that healing was priceless. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that these were unschooled, ordinary people. You know, there's Peter, just a fisherman. He didn't have a pedigree. He didn't have a bunch of letters at the end of his name from all the degrees that he had amassed from great universities. He's just this fisherman guy. And John. These were ordinary folks, and yet these leaders were astonished, and they took note of the fact that, I think these guys had been with Jesus. All the stuff that they're doing in front of us, eyewitnesses, we saw it, we saw this healing, we can't deny it, but these are ordinary guys. Since they could see the man who had been healed, there was the evidence, They had nothing to say. Their jaws dropped and they went silent and they thought well we can't really refute this because we've just seen the evidence. It silenced them. That's what God does for us. God will do things and he'll use the ordinary and things that we would never have expected to reveal his greatness and his power which will lead people to salvation because of the gospel. And then Paul saying You can't brag about any of the part you might have played in your salvation. You can't. There's nothing that you could have done to have participated in God's salvation. That's not what the gospel is about. Most of the religious uh, movements or the religions that were founded by men in the world have to do with great works. There are things that we have to accomplish in order to earn God's favor. And the gospel turns that on its head. And Paul says, nope that's not the way it works with the gospel. You don't hear from a rescued swimmer, man, I was such a good person to be rescued. I know I was going down for the third time and the lifeguard swam out and got me uh, and started kicking me in toward the shore. But I relaxed and I allowed him to rescue me and I breathed easily and I didn't fight him. I was a good person to get rescued. Aren't you proud of me? It's silly, isn't it, to think that we would brag about being rescued? Of course not. We would be sputtering and coughing and thanking the person that rescued us. We have nothing to brag about. And Paul says, you have nothing to brag about in terms of your salvation either. So don't think of yourselves as having boasted about anything that you did to earn the salvation, because you didn't. It's a total gift, totally free, given to you openly by God who loves you enough to give himself in your place. It's only because of God that you've been saved through Jesus Christ, he says in verse 30. And then it's almost like Paul is thinking, because he's such a good orator and a good speaker, it's like he's thinking about his own outline as if he were doing a sermon. Kind of makes a pretty good sermon, come to think about it. He's saying, even in just verse 30, that it was Jesus who showed us God's plan. It was Jesus who made us acceptable to God. It was Jesus who made us pure and holy. It was Jesus who gave himself up to purchase our salvation. Is there anything in there that points to our participation? No. <laughs> it was all about Jesus. Jesus' death on a cross is at the center of the gospel, which is why Paul never got off message. He constantly pointed to the cross. That's the starting point. It's the ending point to the gospel. If we start anywhere else in the Bible trying to figure out what God's plan was, we're gonna miss it. You need to start at the cross. And then everything else starts to take shape. Everything else starts to make sense. Then Paul quotes from an Old Testament passage. If anyone is going to boast, let him boast only about what the Lord has done. And that's what we have to boast about. If somebody says, wow, you seem really different. You're not going to say, yeah, I kind of pulled myself up by my spiritual bootstraps. I'm pretty proud of my self-discovery. Can't do that. I'd have to say, I'm a dirty, rotten, low-down, good-for-nothing sinner who got saved by the grace of a God who loved me enough to die in my place. All the boasting goes to him. I'm boasting in the Lord. So Jesus' death on the cross, Paul's trying to get across to these folks in Corinth, was vicarious. That's a term that we might be familiar with. You hear a lot of parenting that they're living through their children. If uh, a mom has raised their child to dance, I know we have some really wonderful dancing kids in our church. And the mom might say, I never had that opportunity to go as far as my child has gone in dance. And so I get to empathize. I get to vicariously feel some of the feelings of joy and the expression that my daughter gets to go through. So that mom, in a sense, is living through her child. So it's a vicarious experience. A dad might do that through sports to say, my daughter's great in softball or my son is playing soccer. And I I love to feel what he feels a little bit of it. I can't feel it exactly the same way he does, but I share in his experience vicariously. But in a sense, Christ kind of flips that around because instead of there being another generation below us and we're experiencing what we're experiencing through him, we're actually experiencing brand new life because of his death. It's almost like a converse vicariousness. It's an empathy for us, but he endured his death so that we could have life. He participated in something that we could never have accomplished because we're not perfect as he was. We're not eternal as he is. And because there was something perfect and something eternal, he took care of our eternal sin problem by paying our debt on that cross. So he died for our sins. So wonderfully, we get to vicariously experience the spiritual brand new life because of what he did for us. Again, with the medical analogy, what is with all the medical analogies? I can't help it, that's where my mind went this week. Let's say, and again, this is hypothetical, I have not been diagnosed with this, but let's say this time I go to the doctor and this time it's a kidney surgeon. And he says, okay, all these doctors that I go to, they keep giving me the bad news, good news. The doctor says, well, I got some bad news for you. And I say, what's new? For 15 illustrations, it's been bad news, good news. And he says, this time it's your kidney. Bad news is you need a new kidney. I said, okay, yeah, I kind of figured that would be the case based on my symptoms. He says, the good news is we found a donor match for you. Already? Man, that was fast. I know, but this is sermon illustration. We got to get him out by 12. And so he says, the good news is we found a match. And I said, really, who is it? And he goes, well, you're looking at him, kid. I'm a match for you. I had just done a recent test for somebody else, and it turns out that it was in our database, and your name came up next to my name. I am going to. Give you my kidney. Now, now there's another good news. I'm going to have my friend do the surgery because it would be really strange for me to do the surgery on my own kidney. I know this gets really convoluted, but it's my analogy, okay? So give it to me. And so he says, I'm going to fix that for you, and my friend's going to replace one of my kidneys into you. You're going to have your life. And so I wake up out of surgery. I can't boast about that. I can't say, wasn't I a great patient? I just lay so still there for him, I didn't move a muscle. Well, of course you didn't. You're an anesthetic, dude. I mean, there's nothing that I could boast about that. And so what I would be doing instead is just thanking him profusely and saying, I can't believe you did that. Not only did you diagnose it properly, my ailment, but you fixed me and you fixed me by giving me a part of yourself. Now, if we're going to really take this analogy back into the scripture and to the gospel, You have to go a step further and say, yeah, but Jesus, if he's the surgeon, he not only made the correct diagnosis, your problem is sin, which separates us from God, but he's also the surgeon, and he's given us both kidneys because he gave us his whole life. He died so that we could live again. That's the extreme, and that's why Paul uses so many extreme contrasts in his his letters, like the one to the Corinthians, because he realizes, yeah, this is extreme. That's why it's either foolishness to some or wisdom to the others, because it is extreme. But that's what God did for us. It was an extreme measure needed because of our extreme ailment of sin. So I think that there are two basic reasons why many people see the gospel as foolishness. They kind of grow out of Paul's definition of both the Jews and the Gentiles, some who wanted a sign, some who wanted a philosophy to fit their own, I think the same is true today, but they're just using slightly different definitions of their terms. Number one reason why so many people think the gospel is foolishness is because they equate the gospel with what they think the gospel is, and that's a moral standard. And it becomes sort of a, what they might have thought of uh, about these televangelists that are turn or burn kind of people. They got the holy spit coming out of their mouth, and they're saying you're a dirty rotten sinner, and you either turn and 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 uh, accept Jesus Christ, or you're going to hell in a handbasket. And, you know, it's that kind of moral code that you've got to somehow make yourself better. And they think, yeah, but you're missing the point of the gospel here. We can't do anything, as Paul has just made clear, we can't do anything to bring ourselves up into that moral perfection. It's only because God gifts us, He gives us His own moral perfection by planting his Holy Spirit in our heart and transforming us to be more like him. So we can't equate the gospel with some sort of moral conformity. Otherwise, you start drifting into these legalistic turn or burn styles of churches, and they miss the point too. There are a lot of preachers out there that are preaching in a way that I think they kind of miss the point because it turns it into some sort of a works-oriented salvation. We have to avoid that. It's strictly by grace. And then another reason why I think people think the gospel is foolishness today is they equate the gospel with some sort of self-discovery. And that, in a sense, is like the Gentiles was back in uh, the time when Paul wrote this letter. That self-discovery is really just sort of a new age version of secularism. Because if we can somehow discover who we truly are and just give in to that voice within that we'll be able to do better with our life, then we can discover what our true purpose is. Well, that's what the Gentiles wanted, and Paul said, no, that's not going to work. You either reject the gospel or you accept it, but you can't grab parts of it and incorporate that into your self-discovery process either. So both of these reasons why people think it's foolishness need to be abandoned, and the only way you can abandon it is to know what the real thing is. When you start embracing the true gospel and you see the gospel for what it really is, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that was Paul's message. He kept zeroing in on the main part of his message, death, burial, resurrection, death, burial, resurrection. Say it with me now, death, burial, resurrection. That's the gospel. That's why Paul continued to hammer home at those three things, death, burial, and resurrection, because that's the only way we can come to grips with what our real need is, and then we can uh, abandon ourselves into the loving embrace of a God who did everything necessary for us to be saved by him. And then we can think, I had no idea. Because then we will have embraced the power of the gospel, death, burial, and resurrection. The three results of a gospel in somebody's heart, when you know that somebody has been transformed, these are the three results that you'll see evidence in that person. They'll have a new heart. Their heart of stone will be softened, and they'll embrace the word of God and start to want to grow to know him more. They want to hang out with other people who are studying God's word because they want, there's a hunger to know Jesus more personally. There's a new heart. They want to be molded by the great potter who's molding that now pliable heart, that clay that they have become. And another thing they get is forgiveness of sin, not just getting your ticket punched so you can go to heaven someday on the great train of glory, but forgiveness of sin, which means now I don't have to carry around that baggage, that weight of sin and guilt and shame that I was dragging around with me. I could be free from that. And then a reversal of values as well. My values are completely upended. Now I can see that the gospel is the most amazing thing ever. And I want to share it with other people, even though they start to say, you've embraced this? You used to think that was foolishness. That's what happened with Saul when he became Paul. His values completely got upended. And when we start to see people acting like this, there's a sure bet that it's the gospel at work in their lives. The gospel, which is at the center of the transformation that happens with everybody who is accepted by God, starts at the cross. We cannot separate the cross from the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we can't accept a portion of it. We can't brag about any of it. We just accept it or reject it, and when we accept it, he gets all the glory. We're bragging only on him because God did it all, and he did it for us because of his great love for us. That's the gospel message. Then all we can say is, I had no idea. I had no idea. Let me pray, and then I'm going to turn it over to Steve for a benediction today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful for Paul who made it abundantly clear what the gospel is and what it's not. I'm grateful that he has made us see that we're an awful lot like the people back then in Corinth. There's not a lot of difference. The same objections are just couched slightly differently, but it's the same objections that he dealt with. 2000 years ago. And I pray that if there's anybody listening right now who is starting to see, oh, I can see the difference between what I thought the gospel was and what the gospel really is, I pray that your Holy Spirit will do what He is so good at doing and that you will draw them to yourself. That they'll start to open themselves up to the transformation which you offer freely to them and that they will freely admit, yep, I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. I want you in my life. Jesus, come into my life, come into my heart, be the Lord of my life, be the spiritual guide, and guide me into this new life because you're recreating me into your image. I pray that they'll do that. Thank you for doing it in the lives of millions worldwide. May millions more come to the same saving faith through the gospel, and I pray it in Jesus' name.